0: Welcome to the Aussie Pastor Live, right here on Faith FM.
1: G'day listeners and welcome to Faith FM Live. Guess what? It's Hunty here and I'm completely unsupervised. The Aussie pastor is away. <laughs> the Aussie pastor is away and hosting the program today is my good friend, Lyle Southwell. G'day Lyle.
2: Yeah, great to be here Hunty and with the Aussie pastor away that means we've got uh, we free reign. We can talk about whatever we want this morning, right? Yeah, this we afternoon absolutely- <laughs> I should say.
1: Yes, yeah, yeah, live it's 3.30, 4.24 and yes we can. I'm used to doing a breakfast show. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and that just
3: came through.
2: <laughs> Love it! Uh, great stuff. All righty, how you been? How you been, mate? I've been fantastic. Um, I've really actually been looking forward to being able to be on, this, on the on the Aussie Pastor Show this afternoon. First time I've been in your studio. What a great place to have a studio, mate. We're very blessed here. Yes. Can I tell your listeners and viewers?
1: That uh, Lyle only arrived five minutes ago. So if I look a bit, if I look, a few
2: beads of sweat here. Yeah, and no, if I'm still cross-scrolling through the program, trying to figure out what we're going to be talking about today, that might be what it is. No, nah, we're going to be good. It, uh, the Lord's going to bless. The Holy Spirit for is sure. here, and the Holy Spirit was on time, so praise God. We're going let to be me, let
1: me open the program with a prayer. How's that? Fantastic. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, this afternoon I'd like to pray for all of our listeners. Lord, please bless them abundantly. Please wrap your loving arms around them. Please give them peace. And this afternoon, I pray that Lyle and I will lift you high in our community, Lord. In your precious name I ask Jesus. Amen. Amen.
2: All right, where are we going to start this show? Hundy, what's Um, the first thing that you want me to talk about? Let's go with this day in history. This day in history, let's do it. So in this day in history, 1502, Christopher Columba, Columbus leaves on his fourth and final journey around the world. He got stranded in Jamaica. He was rescued there in 1504, and he died two years later in 1506, uh, possibly from gout. So interesting guy, Christopher Columbus. He was uh, definitely a brilliant navigator, uh, probably somewhere on the spectrum, and definitely suffered from... Mental illness in oh. his later years. Oh dear! And so, yeah, on that fourth trip, he was probably in a very bad shape uh, mentally. But uh, yeah, um, one of the one of the greatest navigators of his of his age for sure. Uh, let me see what else we got yeah, here. What else we got? Seventeen eighty eight, the British Parliament bans the slave trade, and of course that was for. Uh, the British Commonwealth uh, mm. nations. Good. And then in 1865, the Civil War ended in America with a resounding victory for the North, uh, setting the slaves free in that particular country. Of course, this wasn't the end of slavery. Uh, traditional slavery continued through until 1888 in the country of Brazil. Wow! But we know, of course, Hunty, that uh, sadly we have more people enslaved right now than what we did in the United States Uh, prior prior to the American Civil War. Wow. So slavery is actually a much bigger problem now than it was back then. Uh, Moving on from there, 1868, the city of Reno, Nevada was founded. Okay. Wow. That's actually near um, Las Vegas, isn't it? You know, my Nevada geography is not that great. (laughs) I've got a rough idea of where Vegas is. I I think most people
1: kind of do, but... I hope that I'm older than Reno, Nevada.
2: <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Um, I'm not, and I'm going to enjoy that this afternoon. Uh, where are we going? 1896, 18, Hunter, you're going to enjoy this one, because yep. I know that uh, both you and I enjoy going to a car show, right? Oh, yeah. We love car shows. Yes, the first ever car show held in the world. Uh, it was in England. It was in 1896. Do you know how many cars there were showing at the show? Ah, uh, 10. 10. <laughs> wow. And, you know, that would have been an event that I imagine people travelled a very long distance to see 10 cars in one place at the same time. Yeah, wow, 10. You know, I mean, that that's just sort of like, it's hard for us to imagine, isn't it? But it is not it But 10 cars. And, and this is not that long ago. This is, what, 130 years ago. Yep. That's not a very long space of time when the greatest car show in history had 10 cars in it. Do you know something, Lyle? The, um, the cartoons of the
1: day had pictures of men on horseback, and they were g- making jeers and making sort of derogatory comments to guys who were trying to drive cars. And they said, now, where are you going to fill that up once you leave town? <laughs> are, we, are we hearing that yeah, similar I've, thing Yeah, I've, I've
2: seen some <laughs> memes very similar to that recently. Indeed. Uh, let me see here, 1901, of course, uh, patriotic Australians will know that the first Australian Parliament opened in Melbourne in 19... 19- you know, I always used to think it was Sydney... Well, surely it had to be Sydney. It's a much more important city than Melbourne. It's a prettier city too. <laughs> to all our <those> Melbourne fans.
1: <laughs> you know, we've got... G'day.
2: <laughs> yeah. Uh, we, we we feel sorry for you down there in... Uh, no, we won't say that. Uh, let me see. Moving on. 1914. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> the US President Woodrow Wilson proclaims the first ever Mother's Day. Wow. So, I, hey, thought, is, I thought Mother's Day had been around longer than that. Is, is it Mother's Day this weekend? I believe
1: so. Okay, guys, if you haven't if you haven't got the hint yet, we're telling you now. Get busy because Mother's Day is this weekend.
2: Yes, indeed, it is. All right, where are we going? Nineteen twenty seven. Canberra replaced Melbourne as Australia's capital city. Uh, so, moving up there to Canberra, which was kind of. A empty kind of place with a couple of big buildings in the middle of sheep paddocks, really. Yeah, that's right. And a scattering of houses around it. Yep. So uh, yeah, it was interesting the founding of Canberra, you know, a strategic move back in the day when having a capital city that wasn't on the coast. Yeah. You know, where it couldn't be shelled by ships yep. was something that people thought about. You know what I like about Canberra?
1: All the roads start out from the one from the one place. And so they've got probably a dozen roads that lead from the centre of Canberra, so they should never have a traffic jam.
2: You know what I don't like about Canberra? What's that? Getting caught <laughs> in traffic
3: jams. <laughs> the love
2: theory it. was good. In practice, not so much. Uh, where are we? 19, what have we got? 1941, British intelligence breaks the spy codes on the Enigma, Enigma machines after I love capturing that. one. I love that machine. Oh, that was just absolutely piece of... Brilliant, brilliant German engineering absolutely the only the only you know the only thing more brilliant than the enigma machine uh, as far as coding goes I during can, the second I can world guess war that's the guys who cracked it no no there was there was there was a machine that was even more brilliant that was never ever cracked during the Second World War really and that was Navajo brains. Yes. Tell, tell us, th-
1: tell us a story about the Navajos.
2: Yeah. So the Navajo code talkers, the Navajo language is a tonal language. So it's one of these languages that is almost impossible to learn. And so the United States Marine Corps recognized that Navajos had this superpower yep. in that they could speak this language. And so then they created a code, like a, a full blown military code. And then they double layered that code by putting that code into Navajo language. Yep, yep. So even if you learnt the Navajo language, you still couldn't crack the code, or if you cracked the code, you still couldn't understand the words. And they used Navajo code talkers. Yeah,
1: you? I actually heard that they had one Navajo code talker in head office, and they'd put one out with all the, battalion, all the battalions. That's right. And they're the only people that could understand the message. Yep,
2: and it had to be translated into English at yep. either end. Yep. Brilliant. And the Japanese never, ever cracked that particular code. So there it goes to show. The most brilliant piece of German engineering trumped by Navajo brains. Excellent. Yeah, I like God's engineering. Hey, can I point something Do yeah? you hear uh, the There's
1: a clock on the bottom of the TV that says 125. Can you see that? I can. That's a segment countdown clock. Okay, We're doing really well. Oh, so I'm going too fast. No, you're doing really well. <laughs> oh, okay. you have got a minute left.
2: <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's let's go here. We got it. We got another couple here to go. Uh, 1955. This day in 1955, West Germany joins NATO. Yep. And yeah, NATO's been an interesting thing. Has been in the news a little bit lately it with has, uh, Ukraine has. and so forth, yep. and preemptive attacks, and uh, the whole idea of you know NATO countries being too close to. You know, a certain superpower, et mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, yeah, that's been significant uh, This one will probably mean more to you than me, Hunty So, the Beatles signed the first contract with EMI oh, I did not know that And then finally we've got, uh, in 2020, American singer and pianist Little Richard passed away um, He died at the age of 87 And he was a seventh-day Adventist, which was fascinating uh, Faith FM... Uh, radio is sponsored by the Adventist Church And Absolutely. someone who struggled with a lot of things during his life Struggled yep. with his Christianity But certainly uh, came back to the Lord in a very strong way at the end of his life and, Indeed, And uh, uh, presented many powerful messages uh, in preaching the Word of God Is that it? Is that the end of uh, this day in history? That is the end of this day in history Alrighty.
0: You're listening to the Aussie Pastor
1: Here on FaithFM Alrighty, let's, uh, it's time for some music, it's time for a song. Let's see what Lloyd has chosen for us. I know he loves this group, uh, Mountain View Academy, because it's a bunch of Evanesc kids who, who goes to school specifically to learn music. And this song is called Tell the Mountain.
4: Of sorrow Looking up from the valley of fear You can see doubt off in the distance And you're about to lose heart right here But don't ever give in Don't ever give up God is with you And you'll overcome
3: The mountain will tell you you can't make it over, it will try to convince you, that it's way too high, though you feel defeated, know that God keeps His promise, so you tell the mountain, just having your
5: He's brought you
4: through. And when his power gave you strength for the journey, the very hour you needed it to. So don't, don't be shy. Time after time, time after time, time. fail you. Go on and die. The mountain
3: will tell you that you can make it over.
1: What a great song. As Lloyd would say, if he was here. So, what's up next? We've got um, the news, Lyle.
2: Yeah, we've got the news. I just want to say about you know, Mountain View Academy, they are pretty amazing. I can tell why Lloyd likes uh, this particular group. I've known a few students that have gone there. Oh, yeah. And uh, they, just, they just pump out incredible music. Nice. Anyway, talking about news, uh, you probably remember, some of you would remember that several months ago there was a lady who was arrested in the UK for uh, thinking the wrong thoughts silently inside of her mind. And uh, she was arrested for that. And uh, as it turns out, uh, obviously, well, what do you do? How do you actually prove that somebody was thinking the wrong thoughts? And since when was there a law against thinking the wrong thoughts? It is kind of dystopian when you think of something like that. But this, of course, was part of the 40 Days for Life uh, program where she was suspected of praying silently in her head outside of an abortion clinic and of course the thing that goes through my mind at that particular point is you know why is it that those who do not believe in God are so terrified of prayer you know why is that actually the case um, and as it turns out, they've actually got really good reason to be afraid of prayer because the 40 Days of Life uh, program where they had people all around the world who were standing outside of abortion clinics and praying for the unborn have now been able to document, and the research has just come out, that there were uh, around about 700 unborn babies' lives that were saved as a result of that campaign. So the 40 Days for Life, it's a pro-life organisation. It conducts a 40-day campaign striving to end abortion uh, by bringing unity the spirit and body of Christ through prayer and fasting, uh, community outreach and peaceful uh, all-day vigils in front of abortion businesses. And so basically what they'll do is that they'll go and they'll stand outside an abortion business and they will silently pray there. Now they've been able to document uh, nearly 700 people that have come to them and said, your prayers were answered, our child is alive today because of your prayers and your actions um, during that particular time. This is pretty incredible um, results right there. Absolutely. Um, Some of the specific places, like in California, there were 76 children that were saved. In Illinois, there were 69. So these are some of the, the larger states. Uh, this particular campaign, oh, there was. by the way, there was two um, abortion clinic employees that reported giving up their work in the abortion clinic and going and finding other employment as a result of these prayers and answers to prayers. They've been doing this for the last 10 years. Uh, they do it twice a year uh, for 40 days each time. And so far, they've been able to document over 13,000 Thousand lives that have been saved. So that's you know, it's incredible, honey. I don't know about you, but I look at the uh, photos of my of my grandchildren when I just you know just hold one of my grandchildren and think you know. So many of these little precious babies that uh, never got a chance to live. And, you know, I know that everybody has a history and a lot of us have done things in the past. And I just want to remember that, you know, God is the one who forgives and he saves and he has grace for everybody in these kinds of uh, circumstances, whatever, you know, our decisions may have been. Um, So this group's prayer campaigns, uh, they began back in 2007. And uh, since then, 139 abortion facilities around the world have been closed where they've been praying, and 250 abortion workers have left the industry and reported this as a result of their prayers. So, I just want to say this: you know, prayer is a powerful thing. Atheists have an absolute right to be terrified of prayer. Amazing. And so, I can understand why they would arrest somebody for praying because. That's a scary thing mm-hmm. for an atheist when somebody prays. Yep. It's a fascinating story we got right there, Hunty. Um, yep. Let's see else what we've got here. This one um, is, uh, yeah, a little bit. Uh, this one's about violence in India, okay. and uh, so with this one, you've got here uh, at least fifty-eight people were killed and fifty churches destroyed in violence in India. This is coming through overnight. Oh, you know, and these are the kind of stories that you know. There's a massive amount of violence right here, and it doesn't make the major headlines. This is not the kind of stories that our major newsrooms are covering or particularly interested in. And so this was extreme violence that erupted over the past week in Manipur in northeast India, uh, mostly in the Imphi Valley and Chachandipurh. I get my Indian pronunciation, (laughs) probably butchered it there. Apologies to all of our Indian listeners this morning, this afternoon, but uh, yeah, this is what's been taking place. Local Christian community has accused the uh, Hindu nationalist government of supporting the attackers, and what has the government done? They've stepped in to cut off all communication to the region. Wow. So we actually don't really know how many people died and how many churches have been destroyed. But we know that it's at least 58 dead with 50 churches destroyed. Uh, Probably a whole lot more information yet to come out. But what we do know is that so far, 36,000 thousand people have been displaced by this. We've got thirty-six thousand refugees as a result of this. Wow. And you kind of think, you know, you've got this nationalist Hindu government in India that really is a, you know, a union of church and state, so to speak, a union of politics and religion. And wherever you get those two things uniting together, you get religious persecution. Uh, but how well is this working out for them? What is it going to do for your economy when you have internal refugees moving from one state to another in massive numbers like this? You know, What are you, what are you going to do to deal with that kind of thing? So it seems somewhat counterproductive to me, honey, yep. Yep. to uh, be involving in these ones. Anyway, moving on. Here's another one for you, honey. Let me yep. tell you what about this one. Let me get your thoughts on this one. 12-year-old kid at school. 12-year-olds, what's that, year six or year seven, yep. thereabouts? Yep. Um, Sent home, as in you're going home right now, you're not finishing the day at school. Yep. Uh, for wearing a T-shirt that said, there are only two genders. Oh, we've got to be very careful how I answer that because
1: <laughs> we're actually live in the Victoria and I think, I think Dead Enders has some special rules for us about
2: that. Yeah, down there in Afghanistan, uh, um, uh, uh, they do have special rules about that in Victoria. And if you say the wrong <laughs> thing, then uh, you can get all kinds of trouble. So that's it. We will report the news on it. Okay, we're allowed to report the news. So this is a video of a middle school student yep. uh, that has just come out, where and this and this broke overnight. It's gone viral because he actually went back to his school board and confronted his school board over it yep. uh, because, you know, the T-shirt that he was wearing was simply proclaiming uh, what we understand from empirical science. Sure, biological. Yes, biological, bi- biological, yep. biological reality. And, uh, you know, last time I checked, school was all about teaching science. Yep. And, you know, one of the things that's fascinating to me is that for a long time... Christians were accused of being anti-science. <laughs> yes. Right? Yes. We, we were always being accused yes, of yes, being yes, anti-science. Yes. Follow the science, I'd say. Follow the science. And so now Christians are standing up and saying, follow the science. And what it, what's, what it has revealed is that Christians have never, ever been anti-science when it's been empirical science. Right. You know, what is, what is testable, what is... Yes. Uh, flat Earth What is Observable, testable and repeatable You're not going to go down the Flat Earth <laughs> I'm not, no <laughs> Okay, but what is observable, testable and repeatable Has never, ever been questioned by Christianity We, Christi- we, we, we question historical science Yes Where people create a narrative for the past And theorise about that But we weren't there, so you can't tell But when it comes to empirical science, Christians have always supported that. Yes. And now all it is is Christians standing up and saying, we should support empirical science. Mm. Empirical science says that, you know, in the vast, 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 vast majority of cases, there is XX and there is XY, and that's all there is. And when you think about it, it's this, this infinite number of... Uh, genders that have been created. How has that been created? It's been created by a social movement. Therefore, it is a social construct and nothing more.
1: Yes. I've got a question for you, uh, Lyle. Yes. Are you going to uh, answer any of the Ask the Aussie Pastor questions later in the program?
2: Yes, because some of this is coming up in the
1: uh, uh, Ask the Pastor questions. Yes, just as I can see our questions starting to fill up with these these kind of questions, as long as you're happy to answer them.
2: Oh, happy to answer those questions, no problem at all. All There's, there's, There's never been a question asked on Faith FM Radio that we have not yet answered, that we do have a little bit of a backlog on the Thursday afternoon show, uh, but so far there's been no question that we haven't answered. Wow. <laughs> So, uh, so you got some questions coming through there. That's going to be that's
1: going to be interesting. They're starting to drip through, right now. In fact, let me give a quick shout out. If you want to send us a question, uh, you can send them to you can send them to us one of two ways. You can text them to us on zero four double eight double eight zero eight five one, or you can email the questions to us theozypastor at gmail dot com. So zero four double eight double eight zero eight five one for SMS, and theozypastor at gmail.com if you want to text email them to us.
2: Fantastic. All right. Okay, so back to Liam Morrison, 12 years old. He uh, wasn't happy about being sent home from school for wearing a T-shirt that pro- proclaimed a biological reality. And so he confronted his school board, and the video of that has gone viral. Really? There ha- so far, it has hit 3.9 million people Views and counting. Oh, so, wow. Hunty and yes. uh, Lloyd here on the Aussie Past. You want to get some big hits? Maybe uh, this is the this is the new strategy for you right here. <laughs> some it. big numbers for uh, the Aussie Pastor uh, TV. Yep, yep, yep. Um, where where he was explaining that you know I never thought that the shirt I wore to school on that uh, day would lead me to speak to you today. He says um, he talks about how he was taken out of his class. He was sat down between two adults. Um had a very uncomfortable talk with him, uh, was told that people were complaining about the words, that people felt unsafe. You know, and I think, okay, how do how do you feel unsafe because of those words? You know, are those words inciting violence? I think not. Hmm. Um, they're just proclaiming science, and that's what school used to be about. Uh, they told me that I wasn't in trouble, but it sure felt like I was. Okay, so they told me he wasn't in trouble, but then they sent him home. Yeah, wow. So, are you in trouble? Or are you not in trouble? If you're not in trouble, then you go back into your classroom and you yep. sit down and you continue to participate. If you are in trouble, then you get sent home. And he got sent home. So I would say, honey, he was in trouble. <laughs> you know what, Lyle? I
1: think it was only like a few weeks ago, someone asked this question in Parliament. We are you? Were you aware of that? They they asked, "What is a woman?" Might have missed that one. And no one was prepared to answer it. They said, "I oh, will take that on notice." No one was prepared to have a have a stab at that.
2: Ah, uh, just call us here on Faith FM. We can answer that question for you. It's pretty simple and straightforward. And the Bible teaches what it is, along with science. I love it how the Bible lines up with all empirical science.
1: Yes. Alrighty, um, that's our new segment, isn't it? You're done. I'm done. Excellent. You're listening to the Aussie Pastor, here on Faith FM. Alrighty, uh, let's have some music. What has Lloyd got for us in store, Neil? Oh, here we go. God's Amazing Grace by the Lindsays mm-hmm.
5: to me was shown. Now I stand here before you tonight rejoicing everything's all right because in my heart I know that I am safe. Oh and now I long to do God's
1: Now, the Aussie pastor, he's not here. He's on a boat cruise with his beautiful wife, somewhere off the coast of, the east coast of Australia, having a wonderful time. But we're in the middle of a four part series on breaking chains. And so, what I've got for you this afternoon is I've got part three, which we first aired last Friday night on our social media channels. But this one is about addictions. I think you'll enjoy it.
6: Tonight I want to just start off by making clear again, and I've got to do this when we're doing subjects like this, that I'm a Christian, I'm a follower of Jesus, I'm a believer. And because I'm a Christian and I'm a follower of Jesus and a believer, the Bible is important to me and the Bible defines for me. And I get this may not be the place that every Aussie is at, but the Bible defines for me what is right, and what is wrong actually pretty interesting when you look at our society and culture and the laws of this land Australia the Bible still pretty much defines for the secular law what is right and wrong still does too and so when I look at the Bible I see a whole host of of things the Bible defines as wrong I mean LGBT, Q, stealing gossip Violence and murder, war, adultery and fornication, lying All these things the Bible makes very, very clear are wrong That's right, they're wrong The Bible defines them as wrong And it goes further Smoking, drugs, you might say to me Well, we're smoking and drugs in the Bible The Bible's very clear that we're to look after our lives We're to treat our our bodies as the temple of God We're to care for them. I mean, gluttony, pornography, all these things in the Bible. And and again, I get it that Aussies don't necessarily go along with this. I get that. But I think that for me, it rings true that the Bible has the right, has the authority to define what is right and what is wrong. Now, the problem is when most of us look at the list of sins that the Bible puts out there, that are wrong I think most of us could identify with one or more of those sins in fact some of us can say we're addicted to those sins and we just cannot try as we might we cannot escape we're in chains those sins those temptations it's almost like a demons inside of us we're born with them we like them they give us pleasure and we cannot escape we're down in dungeons chained in the darkness to a dungeon wall and we just cannot get away these sins are a part of us they're a part of our life they're a part of the very fabric of who we are they're a part of our dna like i just said before seems like we might even be born with these sins in our lives and we can't escape and yet i know that intrinsically, deep, so, deep down inside of many of us, is this desire for freedom. I think everyone wants freedom. And in this series, and again tonight, I want to tell you, God can break the chains of your addictions and your temptations. Yes, he can. God can break those chains. Now, already in this series, I've said that if you've got a sin, a temptation in your life that you can't escape, first thing, And I made this clear in the first program of this series that you need to understand is God does not judge you. world might judge you, church might judge you, your friends and your family might judge you, society, culture, the law, the government might judge you. God will not. And I love that about God. So if you want to escape, from these sins that so easily beset us, you need to understand, number one, God doesn't judge you, first program. And number two in the second program, if you really want to get rid of these sins, hang around with God. I mean, go to church, spend time in the Bible, spend some time in prayer. Go to a Bible study group Whatever you do Just hang around God You know when you're with God The demons that are tempting you That are leading you down this road of sin and temptation They just can't be there So spend some time hanging around with God And if you haven't seen this series Go to the Aussie Pastor YouTube page And go to Breaking Chains the, The list there And you'll be able to watch them again Okay so God does not judge you Hang around God And today I'm telling you If you want to escape sin Run. I mean, run, run, run as fast as you can. Run and run. There's a story in the Bible, might be, oh, 1,700, 2,000 years old. Now, I keep saying this because I know how the Australian mind works. I get that we're not really into the Bible that much in this land and this country of ours. But this is a good story. It's a dust-up in a family. I'm not going to go too much into it. But the brothers in this family get a hold of one of the youngest. His name's Joseph. And this dust-up's a bad one. It's a big argument. They throw him in a pit, none known to his father. They sell him to slave traders on their way to Egypt. Well, this guy ends up in Egypt, and he's sold to Potiphar. Now, who's Potiphar? Well, Potiphar is the captain of the king's guard. He's the one who's in charge of soldiers to protect the king. So Joseph, this young man, probably... 17 years of age, is sold as a slave into this very high official's home. And what happens? Well, it's a good story. Let's pick it up in Genesis chapter 39. The Bible says the Lord was with Joseph. So he succeeded in everything he did as he served in the home of his Egyptian master. So here he is, a 17-year-old boy, and he is a very impressive young man. And Potiphar's very impressed with him. Because in the next verse, verse 6, it says, So Potiphar gave Joseph complete administrative responsibility over everything he owned. Remember, he's 17, 18, 20 years of age. With Joseph there, he didn't worry about a thing except what kind of food he was going to eat. So obviously, like me, Potiphar likes his food and he wants to still choose what food he's eating. But Joseph is in charge of everything else and he's 17, 18, 19, 20 years of age. He's a young man and he's risen to the top in one of the most important official in Egypt, he's risen right to the top of his household. He is in charge of everything. Now, this is where the story hots right up. Joseph was a very handsome and well-built young man. And Potiphar's wife soon began to look at him lustfully. Come and sleep with me, she demanded. Now, when Christians look at this story, I think we've looked at it for decades, generations, maybe millennia. And we've seen Joseph, 17, 18, 19, 20. We see Potiphar's wife and we think, oh, she's the older woman who's got her eye on the younger man and she's chasing him down, the cougar sort of thing. Well, not necessarily so. Remember who Potiphar was. He's the captain of the king's guard. Back then, you didn't fall in love. The king would give you a wife. And you can almost take it to the bank that Potiphar's wife, we don't really know her name, was probably the same age as Joseph or even just a little bit younger. So get the scene here. You've got Joseph, a really good-looking dude. You've got this beautiful young girl. How old was she? 15, 16, 17 years of age, married to this old guy, Potiphar, and she looks at Joseph when he comes into the household. She's attracted to him because he's good-looking, and she wants to sleep with him wonder how most men today would cope with that temptation. I'll say it again. Potiphar's wife was beautiful. He's the captain of the king's guard. She is beautiful. She is one of the most stunning, good-looking girls in all of Egypt, or she would not have been married to Potiphar, the captain of the king's guard. And she wants Joseph. Watch this. But Joseph, oh, God bless him, refused. Look, he told him, my master, trusts me with everything in his entire household. No one here has more authority than I do. He has held back nothing from me except you because you're his wife. How could I do such a wicked thing? It would be a great sin against God. I mean, Joseph had one thing going for him that a lot of Aussies don't when it comes to temptation. He was a believer and a follower in God. And his first instinctive reaction was not, oh, you're good looking, you're beautiful, I'm going to sleep with you. Like most men in Australia, that's how we would react, that's not how he reacted. Because he's a believer and a follower of God, he said, how can I do this great sin against God? Now watch this. She kept putting pressure on Joseph. This is verse 10 of chapter 39. She kept putting pressure on Joseph day after day, but he refused to sleep with her and he kept out of the way as much as possible. So Joseph believes in God and now he's keeping out of the way of the temptation. Could not have been easy. Would not have been easy. So what happens? One day she came, verse 12, and she grabbed him by the cloak and she demanded, come on, sleep with me. Joseph tore himself away, but he left his cloak in her hand as he ran from the house. Joseph ran away from the temptation. Now, this is pretty good advice for me, actually. When you're tempted, run. I mean, I was talking to our producer, Director Hunty, before the beginning of this program, so I'm not sure whether I ought to admit one of the great... Well, it is not one of. It is the greatest temptation in my life right now, and it's appetite gluttony, I, I'm a fat boy, I've been to the doctor, blood pressure's through the roof, high cholesterol, you got to lose weight, Lloyd, show some discipline with your food, now for a lot of you that might not be a big deal, but for me who's fighting for my life, it's a big deal, I mean when I go, when I go down at night to put the dog out and the fridge is sitting there and it's calling to me,
7: come on Lloyd,
6: it'll be okay just a little bit, I need to do a joseph, I need to learn, and I haven't learned that lesson properly yet, although I have lost 13 kilos. Thank you. I need to learn to run. And so do a whole lot of you men and women out there tonight. So how do I run? How do I run away from these temptations which are instinctive inside me, which are a part of me, which I may even be born from? How do I run from temptation? Well, look at this. If you're addicted to alcohol in half Australia, three quarters, almost all of Australia, it seems, is addicted to alcohol. For goodness sake, if you're addicted to alcohol, then don't go to the pub, to the bars or the clubs where we drink alcohol. That's running. Don't go where your friends and mates are drinking. You're running. Get rid of the beer out of the fridge. You're running. I mean, if you're struggling with smoking pot, Do the same thing. Don't go around to your mate's house when he's going to sit down and smoke some weed. If you've got a stash in your own home, put it in the garbage, get rid of it. I mean, you can go onto the heavier drugs. Heroin. I mean, you've got to run from this stuff before it, it takes you out and destroys your life. I mean, I say to some people who are deeply into drugs, and this is, I'm talking alcohol. I'm talking even marijuana pot. I'm talking heroin. These things that get a hold of us and we can't escape from. Maybe you need to go to a clinic or a hospital. You do that, you're running from the temptation. What about this one, pornography? You know, I, I'm a great believer that every single man on the planet if you're a blue-blooded male, you've got to deal with pornography. And so do, it seems, an increasingly large amount, larger amount of women. You've got to run. I mean, if you're stuck in pornography and you can't escape, then when you're on your computer and you feel a temptation come upon you, shut the computer down. Run. Try not to be alone with the computer. Run. I mean, I live in Sydney. We live in Sydney, a lot of us. Or Australia this is a beautiful country I mean if you're in front of the computer and you're being tempted and it's overwhelming you, shut the computer down run out of the house and go outside in this great big sunburnt land of ours and do something else I mean get some help I know of no temptation maybe other than appetite that gets a hold of you harder Than pornography, tell a friend, get accountable, that's running Go to a pastor or a counsellor, be accountable, that's running Whatever your sin, whatever your weakness, learn to run Now I want to tell you something about running, which I think is pretty interesting Running is hard, I've done a fair bit of running, it's not easy, running is hard Running can be lonely because often you're running by yourself Running wears you out Running takes discipline and desire But you know what, when you run You get strong Run from the temptation It's a simple message Run as fast as you can Run as far as you can Get out of that environment Run, run, run Joseph ran away from Potiphar's wife Why don't you run too? Take a look at this little video just for a moment
8: Almost everything we think we know about addiction is wrong. The idea of addiction we've all got in our heads, that story, comes partly from a series of experiments that were done earlier in the 20th century. You get a rat and you put it in a cage and you give it two water bottles. One is just water and the other is water laced with either heroin or cocaine. If you do that, the rat will almost always prefer the drugged water and almost always kill itself quite quickly. So there you go, right? That's how we think it works. In the 70s, Professor Alexander comes along and he looks at this experiment and he noticed something. He said, ah, we're putting the rat in an empty cage. It's got nothing to do except use these drugs. Let's try something a bit different. So Professor Alexander built a cage that he called Rat Park, which is basically heaven for rats, right? They've got loads of cheese. They've got loads of coloured balls. They've got loads of tunnels. Crucially, they've got loads of friends. They can have loads of sex. And they've got both the water bottles, the normal water and the drugged water. But here's the fascinating thing, in Rat Park, they don't like the drugged water. They almost never use it, none of them ever use it compulsively, none of them ever overdose. You go from almost 100% overdose when they're isolated to 0% overdose when they have happy and connected lives. What if addiction isn't about your chemical hooks? What if addiction is about your cage? What if addiction is an adaptation to your environment? That's good advice. And I agree with that young man.
6: Addiction, sin, temptation. It is all about your environment. And that's why I'm telling you tonight to run. Because when you run, you get out of the environment of the addiction of the temptation. You get away from that which has been bringing you down. And if you can get away from it, then there's a fair chance that you're going to defeat it. You're going to beat it. You know, as I close tonight, there are a lot of you out there who are struggling with addiction, sin and temptation. You watch these programs, and it's a little bit like the sun rising after a, a dark night. But you need some help. If you would like some help, and I've got friends all over Australia who would like to help you, I want to encourage you to go to AussiePastor.com, sign up to the form, and we'll contact you, and we'll help you to overcome any addiction, any sin, any temptation that's attacking you that you just cannot defeat. My name's Lloyd Grollerman. I'm the Aussie pastor and I love you. But Jesus, he loves you so much more and he wants to free you. God bless. See you next time. You're listening to the Aussie pastor here
1: on Faith FM. All righty. That's um, pretty good advice, I reckon. Run. That's, That's something I can do. I can run. You know what? It's time for some music. Let's listen to the Dunaways, and they're performing Didn't I Walk on Water.
4: As I kneel in the darkness In the middle of the night For assurance Everything's gonna be alright And Lord I see another battle It's out in front of me I'm afraid I won't be able And I'll go down in defeat And he said Do you remember where i brought you from just take a look behind you and how far you've come oh and every time you ask me didn't i deliver you so why would you be thinking Said my bills are coming due, Lord. And six days is not that long. She hears a voice so soft and low. He says, I've moved like that before. And I'll do this little thing.
1: song the dunaways and didn't i walk on the water coming up now we've got a testimony from a guy who made some mistakes in his life big mistakes but it cost him absolutely everything uh, let me play you this uh, testimony i'm sure you'll be blessed eric welcome Thank you. uh share with us uh your life before what happened the the chaos and how you got to meet
7: jesus
9: and what jesus did for you
7: I've been a Christian for 20 years, uh, but for 40 years, my entire life, I have struggled with addictions to things like pornography and sexual things, and it is, uh, even though as I was a Christian, it still plagued me. And four years ago, it came out that I was having an affair, and I lost everything in one weekend because of it. Even though I was a Christian, it was still a struggle in my mind and my heart and everything, and I couldn't break free from it. And I lost everything that weekend: my marriage, my children. Both my jobs, I became homeless, and that was the day that God said, it's time. And then he started me on a journey of rebuilding my life, but he started from the ground up. He had to break me down. And then about six months later, when God had given me a small business, and about six months later, I started that business in my friend's garage while I was living in his basement. I still had lost so many things in my life, but God was slowly rebuilding those things, bringing back conversation after conversation, these kinds of things, with people, all sorts of stuff. And he took me to the lowest point in my life standing in that garage. He One day he came to me, held a divine mirror up in front of me and said, you are the man you did this and I had nothing left because he exposed everything in me. He brought it all to the surface and he said, you have no excuses, that's it, it's done. And that was my lowest day, the lowest day of my life. Uh, and and he kind of let me wallow in that for a couple of hours. He let me understand really who I truly was, that Holy Spirit divine exposure. And then after that, he came back to me the same day and he said to me, You are a fighter. I've allowed these circumstances to be stacked up against you for a reason. You've lost everything. Everything has been taken from you. You have been turned against by just about everybody around you because of your sin. But I've allowed the circumstances because I called you to be from the moment you were born to be a fighter. You've been one your entire life. The problem is, you have been at war with everybody around you since you were a little boy. So, it's time for you to get into the right fight, stand up, and get out there and start fighting for the hearts of the people around you now. Go. And when he said that to me, something inside of me changed permanently. And I stood up and I couldn't help but just move. I was so broken and because of the shame, everything inside of me, for so many years, being lying and hiding and I was just I couldn't just stand up but God stood me up and said go and that day he sent me out after my daughter my adult daughter who wanted nothing to do with me and he drove me to her work and I marched in that door and I said I've got one thing to say to you I love you and what I didn't know was that morning she had reached her lowest point ever and God told her don't give up don't quit don't give the throw in the towel and he said to her Or she said, she started crying out to him, I just want someone to tell me they love me. And that was the day God broke my heart and sent me after my daughter. But that began the process in my life of rebuilding. And God knew that I had to stand up and fight. And the biggest battle ever started from within me. He started bringing it out of me. And he started taking me to the darkest places in my life. The deepest, darkest places, the scariest places. We all know those spots in our hearts and minds. And he started taking me there. A couple years later, he took me to some counseling in Montana. And in the middle of that week, he showed me, I have never truly rested in that that salvation that I've been given. Hebrews chapter 3 and 4 talks about resting in Christ, sitting on what he had finished and completed. And I realized I'd never been that because I thought he was going to reject me just like everybody else had. And I knew the only way to heal was to give him access to my entire heart. And I couldn't do it. Largest leap of faith I ever took was hiking up a mountain that week. And when I got halfway to the top, I told the Lord, I'll sit and rest as soon as I get to the top. And he said, no, stop right here, sit and rest. And as soon as I did that... Two footsteps to the left, I sat on the ground, and I started bawling. Forty years worth of pain, forty years worth of rejection, all the stuff from a little boy, all the trauma started coming to the surface. God said, do not move until I tell you to. Stay here. And I fell asleep right there on the ground, and I cried, and I cried, and I slept, and I woke up, and God said, you can move along. He told me to stay there until I tell you to move, and he said, you can move. And after that, I started making my way back down. I got to the bottom. I started driving away in my truck, and God said this. Two people went up that mountain today, but only one came down. That sad, scared, broken little boy was laid to rest up there, and he said to me, I did that. Enter into my rest. Your strivings have ceased. Come on, give God a shout of praise for that. This is so awesome.
1: This shows us how we, when we surrender completely our pain, our issues, our heartbreaks, everything to God and give our problems into His hands, He'll put peace
2: into our hearts.
1: Amen to that. What yeah, do you reckon, yeah, yeah. Lyle? I really
2: just want to encourage our listeners who were listening to that particular testimony right there that that's an experience we can all have. You know, Jesus offers, offers us offers us the victory. And, of course, the ideal is to have that experience before we reach that rock-bottom point. Um, may we learn from this man's lesson and may we give our hearts to Jesus right now. Absolutely.
0: You're listening to The Aussie Pastor
2: here
1: on Faith FM. Alrighty, it's time for some more music. And coming up right now, we've got... Um, let me say, We've got The Blood by Sissy Winans.
4: Chase to the high
3: Mountain,
5: oh yeah, and it flows.
1: Amen and amen Man that's a great song You know what It's time for our first special guest And let me see Hensley uh, Can you hear us mate Hey hello How are you hunty Good thank you mate I'm glad you hello. can hello. join us hello. Look at my new co-host Can you see um, Lyle there
9: hey, Yeah, yeah. Can you see, uh, There we go Very, okay. Okay. very handsome Very good <laughs>
2: The lighting in, the lighting in, uh, in Hunty's studio here, um, does deceptive things, Hensley. <laughs> you should, uh, you should come down here <laughs> sometime. Well, we're so glad you've joined us. You're talking about sin today, aren't we? Yes, um, indeed we are. Nice. You know, I had, a, I had an interesting experience some time ago. I was doing an evangelistic program, and a lady came up to me. Before the program had of started, she had a bee in a bonnet, and she had a question she wanted to ask. And I'm just going to toss this one out to you, um, Hensley. And she, she, she came up almost aggressively, and she's like, why is it? that all that Christians ever do is talk about sin all the time. Why are they so obsessed with talking about sin? So here's the question. Why do Christians talk about sin?
9: Um, Lyle, Christian, don't talk uh, all the time about sin. That's the perception people have of us. We don't talk all the time about sin. I think we talk all the time about love. And in the course of our discussion, you will see that... uh, The reason why we talk about love is because of Jesus Christ. Um, If we do talk about sin, it's because of our condition, of where we are at, where we've landed. That's why we we talk about sin. But we don't measure in sin. We measure in the grace and the love of God all the time. Okay, but when we do talk about sin, we make
2: some people feel bad, you know, because we talk about things that are sinful and therefore are wrong, and that makes people feel bad. Is Does that mean we shouldn't ever talk about sin? Is there a time and place uh, to talk about sin?
9: Like, like here, here's the thing, uh, Lal. Um, all of us have sinned, uh, and and uh, it, it's it's something that affects every one of us. There is not one human being that can say everything I did today was right. Um, you, you know the, the 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 English saying: "Only fools has has no reg- have no regrets." So every one of us, we know, will we, we'll, we'll look at what we did from this morning to now. We know that there are things we could have done better. So, so sin affects everybody. It's not an issue of some people, other people. It affects you. It affects me. It affects Christians. It affects people that, 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 that don't have a Christian, uh, belief. It affects everybody. So again, you know, like the English language, only fools have no regrets. It doesn't say, um, you know, Christians or non-Christians. <laughs> They're fools have no regrets, you know? I love it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Okay, so just moving on with that
2: same sort of a, a, a thought, and one of the questions that uh, has come to me from time to time is that you know we talk about sin, well, we 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 mention sin, and uh, and then we find that you know the Bible says the wage of sin is death. So why is it that God pronounces the death sentence on sinners? You know, why not just leave sinners to leave them alone, stay of their lives, let them do their thing, and let everybody else who you know who doesn't want to live that kind of a life, do their thing? Why not just live and let live? Why does God have to say, you know, sinners have to die?
9: Um, What is sin Uh, is your first question. Mm, Good Uh, question. And that leads to why sinners have have to die. I mean, uh, sin basically, uh, in in its purest definition, is missing the mark. And so... uh, When you try to achieve something and you miss it, that's the purest definition of sin. And so what we all want is life. We all want to live. We we, we, we all want to to live eternally. That's what we are trying. That's why we have anti-aging stuff. That's why we we are drinking so many pills to live longer lives. Uh, The source of life is God. When we sin, we cut that source of life. And so it's not like, okay, God, you know, come and zap us all because we sin. It's we've cut ourselves from the source of life. uh, Ultimately, you know, we're going to die. Is there an aspect that
2: comes through there where ultimately God wants to have a universe that is free from sin and that the only way to actually accomplish that? Uh, you know to have a universe that you know where you've got this one pulse of harmony and love that just beats throughout the entire universe, uh, the only way to actually bring that about result that that result about at some particular point is to get rid of sin, which by default means that you get rid of sinners
9: yeah i th- i think I think we all agree that we would like to live in in a world where there's no sin uh, we would like to live in a world where there's no consequences of sin. Uh, we we talk about why are some people a little bit you know angry when we talk about sin people live under the consequences of sin um uh, you know we 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 all have things that uh Blocks us, things that that annoy us, things. I mean, I mean, these are the consequences of people doing bad things to us in the past. So we all live under the consequences of sin, and ultimately, we all would like sin to be to disappear. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, some people have more serious bad things happening to them. Mm, mm.
2: And I guess this is one of the things that that I see is that, you know, God does allow sin to continue for a period of time so that the whole universe can see just how destructive it is and why it is that, you know, God wants to get rid of it. I see a little bit like, uh, I'd be interested in your thoughts on this, um, Hensley, but a little bit like COVID, you know, we would all love for COVID to go away and, you know, to be able to kill this virus that, you know, created so much havoc in our world for a couple of years. And, you know, mm. if, if if we look at sin as being like a, a disease and a virus, which obviously far worse than COVID, that is going to result in just, you know, untold pain and suffering, we want to see that come to an end.
9: Yeah. Uh, so, so you've compared it to COVID. I come from the island of Mauritius, a very cyclone-prone country. And every year... We get those worries, is a cyclone going to hit Mauritius? We've had a couple of direct hits, and it destroys everything in its path. So, yeah, we would like a world without COVID. We would like a world without without cyclones. We would like a, a world without people doing bad things to good people, to innocent people. We would like that.
2: Yeah, yeah. Okay, so we can understand why God, you know, um, pronounces a death sentence on sinners, you know and and sin because wants to have a clean universe at some particular point you know and I think the amazing thing about that whole process is just how much grace God gives us um, in in that process and how much opportunity okay so that makes sense so then all right next question is why then uh, did God have to die to be able to forgive sinners why couldn't God just say well i 'm a forgiving kind of person you ask for forgiveness, I can forgive you. Why did Jesus actually have to die on the cross? Um, you know, when when somebody comes to us and or or, or we go to somebody that we have, uh, you know, or well, somebody comes to us and they ask forgiveness for something they've done, you know, we don't pay the penalty, we don't we don't um, we don't die or anything like that. We just say, hey, thanks for coming and talking to me about that. Of course, I'll forgive you. But God doesn't just
9: forgive us. He also died. Why was it that God died? I must say that, you know, like when Lloyd is around, he doesn't ask me such difficult questions. (laughs) 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 Oh, dear. Let's take a couple of steps back. Um, The first step back is uh, God pronounces death not on a sinner or a type of sinner, but death is on all sinners. Yes. So that means, like you and I, we have to die. Yes. And then there is grace. So God gives grace not to certain people, but gives grace to everyone. Yes. Okay. So 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 that's you know like sin applies to everyone, grace applies to everybody else. But I think the answer to your question comes from your question. Um, God did not punish somebody so that we can have our debt taken care of. God himself died. And, and, and that's the fundamental aspect of what we are talking here. Uh, sin, if, if I read the Bible correctly, requires uh, leads to death and god didn't say okay lyle you know what tough luck i'm gonna punish you so that a you know he he himself comes and takes the punishment he takes uh, he, he takes the consequences of death now why didn't he say okay you know you know let me wipe the slate clean he, he didn't do that because Sin is a serious thing. Sin is a serious thing. You cannot go to the bank and say, okay, you know what? I'm going to default on my loan, so wipe my, 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 my loan clean. Uh, owing the bank is a serious thing, if I take and take that analogy. Sin is very serious. And because sin is very serious, God couldn't say, okay, you know what? I'm just going to zap everything out. And, and just, you know, um, get everything, uh, to start from, 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 day one. No, he comes down himself. The, the amazing thing about, about God dying on the cross is that, um, it is not a case where God says, you know what, Angel Gabriel, I want you to take care of that problem for me. So it's not, the in, uh, god punishing an angel so that we can be saved god takes the punishment himself because sin is a very serious thing and also
2: because he's the he's the one who's pronounced that you know the the the, the consequences of sin is death you know that's the the yeah. law that he has made and if he's made that law then really i guess in many ways he's the only one who can step in and and pay the penalty. I mean, as you say, it would be very, very unfair if he sort of sat back and like, oh, no, you know, somebody needs to pay the penalty for this. So um, Gabriel or Hunty or whoever it might else, you go and and pay the penalty for it because he made the law. Um, He would look pretty bad in the eyes of the entire universe if he did something like that. Yeah, so we've we've, we've kind of Mm. gone uh, gone deep here this afternoon, uh, Hensley. I really appreciate the answers that you're... um, bringing through here, I want to look at the at the cross from another perspective now and that is from a, a historical perspective and, yes, yes. Uh, and and talk about you know because of obviously this is the foundation of Christianity this is where you know the, the whole of Christianity hangs on the reality of the cross um, and so do we have any independent proof of Jesus' death on the cross other than the four, the four official biographies?
9: Okay. There, there 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 is the reality. There is nobody that denies the death of Jesus today. Even the the, the 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 strongest atheists and I listened to to all of them, none of them deny the death of Jesus, even the death on the cross. Now, you are asking for um independent sources other than the four biographies i think we do have independent sources talking about jesus uh, suetonius and and so on but it would be unfair for us to ask for um, biographies outside of those that are written in the bible let me explain to you who wrote the biographies of alexander the great
2: well you've got me on that one i couldn't tell you who wrote those biographies
9: so, for example, a biography was written by Plutarch, who is a Greek. So your question is telling me, like, give me a a, a, a source of Alexander the Great, not written by a Greco-Roman author.
3: Mm-hmm.
9: Very well, good point. It, it, doesn't, yes. Got it. it doesn't make it, any it doesn't sense exist. at all. Yeah, yeah. It, it, it's a, so, so asking for an independent outside of the four biographies that we have is a little bit of an unfair question. We do have sources outside of them. You know, for example, you know, as I said, Suetonius and so on, we do have uh, sources outside. But asking to give us something outside of the four biographies is a bit of an, uh, an unfair uh, uh, question for, for you to ask. The question you, we ask is, are those biographies sustainable? Uh, can we trust them? And the answer with that is a resounding yes. OK, so how do we know that a story is right in this world today? Like, let's say, for example, if if, if, if in a year's time we say, how do we know that Hensley and, and Lyle had an interview on, on radio? We just play back the interview. There's an interview. How do we know that you went to Israel, Lyle? I mean, we take a photo of you and we, we get uh, we say, OK, yeah, you've been in Israel. How do uh, ancient sources prove the historicity of the account? The historicity of the account is proven by a couple of rules. The first rule is multiple attestations. Do you know how many attestation there is not only of the death, but of the resurrection of Jesus? About 16 attestation within 100 years. How many attestations do we have of Alexander the Great?
2: Yeah, I, you've named Plutarch so far, and I'm not sure that we have much more than that. I mean we have we other do, we do have it, other, it, it, do so have other have,
9: records for sure. But not a lot. We don't have we don't have more than five of them, and all of them are four hundred years after Jesus. Uh, sorry, after Alexander the Great. But Jesus within one hundred years, within the first right, sixty years. We have more than four accounts telling us about uh, the the, the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Now, here's another thing. Uh, If within the lifetime of people, there are stories being written about the death and resurrection of Jesus. If that wasn't true, people would have ridiculed that. And I guess, you know, when you
2: when you look at it from that perspective, we've got more evidence for Jesus Christ than we do for any other single person, any other individual that existed from that era. Far more evidence than anyone else from
9: that era. We have far more evidence of the historicity of Jesus than what we have of, you know, great. My, my favorite, let, let me tell you something, my favorite Greek person is Pericles. Uh, I don't know if you know Pericles. Yeah, I know uh, roughly. So, so if you've been to Athens, you will see the Pantheon, and he was the one that built it. Okay, so that's uh, so that's my favorite guy in antiquity. I I love the guy. You know, he, his, you know, but we have so little about him. Uh, We have accounts from Thucydides, and then again, we have accounts from Plutarch. So we have far more about Jesus than we have of those guys. Hensley, it's been fantastic
2: talking to you. I wish we could spend the rest of the afternoon here mm. chatting on these subjects. Hunty. hasn't it been amazing? Absolutely. Uh, we've, gone, we've gone deep here today. Uh, unfortunately, uh, the clock air is telling us we're out of time. It is. We'll have thank-
9: to get this guy back.
2: <laughs> yes, indeed. Thanks, Hensley.
9: Okay, thank you, Hunty. Thank you, Lao. See you, you next you soon. time.
1: Cheers. You're listening to the Aussie
0: Pastor here on Faith FM.
1: All righty, some some more music. Let's see. He hideth my soul by the Bessie Choir.
2: Listening to He Hideth My Soul with the Bessie Choir here on Faith FM this afternoon. And Hunty, I'm looking at the screen right here. Yep. And it reads Thoughts from Lyle. Yes. You are a brave man.
1: (laughs) I guess that's uh, a segment that Lloyd thought you might like. So
2: thoughts from so I can share whatever I'm thinking at the moment. That's the uh,
1: present theology. Yes, you can, you can say you can say <laughs> yes. absolutely anything. Great right <laughs> Uh
2: and you've got your finger, of course, on the uh, on the mute button. I am quite sure, but that's for okay. sure. <laughs> All right. So this afternoon, I'm going to talk about trigger warnings. Oh yeah. So this is going to be controversial. Trigger warnings are something that I've used in the past. You know, particularly when I'm speaking on Faith FM and you hit a heavy subject like abortion, which yep. a lot of people have, you know, this is this is a subject which universally women who go through this experience suffer at some point in their life from depression. Yep. We know that. That's 100%. And so, you know, in the past, I've often given a bit of a trigger warning and said, hey, we're going to be talking about this subject. It's a heavy subject. And, Fair enough. You know, if it's one of those things that is going to be disturbing for you, then... Um, you know, you need to know we're going to be talking about it. Come to find out, new research, and this was presented yesterday by Main Kara Yakubian, who is a graduate student in clinical psychology, specialising in judgments and decision-making. Trigger warnings are not just a bad idea, they're a terrible idea, and they do terrible things to people with PTSD. Really? You wouldn't think so, would you? We we often do them too on our
1: program. We often yeah. say, "Look, you know, this next segment's going to be upsetting to you if the following circumstances." We thought we thought we've been helping people.
2: Well, that I did the same thing because that's what everybody does, and it's like, well, that's how society operates, right? Wow. So this was interesting. I I really made my ears prick up when I heard about this. Let me go through this. Um, so, definition of trigger warnings is basically you have to let me know what you're going to say because it might upset me. So that's the idea Fair behind enough. a trickle warning. Yep. And this idea never originated with uh, clinical psychology or research. That's not the origin, because I, I just always assume that, you know, there's the latest thought in psychological research and so this is what we do, this is how we operate. Yep. Um, it actually originated in school parents, so you talk about your helicopter parents, your bulldozer parents, and your greater parents. So your helicopter parents hovering over their kids all the time, your bulldozer parents is pushing all of the stones out of their way, the greater parents are making it like uh, just smooth as smooth for their kids to go through. And you had a situation where parents were complaining to teachers in schools. These students, um, they were complaining to parents, to teachers in schools, oh, you said something that upset my child. And so then... Teachers who were sensitive to that tried to create classrooms in which they didn't upset the children. So you get your helicopter parent who complains to the teacher in the school, don't say things that will upset my child. The child then carries that to university and the university lecturer says something that upsets them and they approach the university lecturer afterwards and say that was really upsetting for me, that triggered me, You know, I had all of these bad feelings as a result of what you said. And so you get sensitive university professors who start to either not say those kinds of things or give a warning beforehand, and that's where the trigger warning originated. It never originated in in, in psychological research. Um, And so it was basically, um, it was given to students because of the uh, demands or the complaints that they were making, and it was created by campus climates and became a part of society so nobody questioned it. Um, So this was obviously started by people in good faith um, to help people with PTSD, Yep, um, and so you know, what's counterintuitive that the result of that has actually been the opposite, and has made PTSD worse. How? How is that possible? Okay, so, so yeah, I know, and I, I know it's so <laughs> weird. It's like, how does that? How does yep. that even work? And and when this was being presented, I'm thinking, no, that, that you know, I, I've preached sermons where I've given trigger warnings. I've I've come on Faith FM where I've given trigger warnings, right? Yep. Um, but before we get there, let's talk about one other effect that it's had. It's that lecturers now typically avoid areas that require trigger warnings, which has resulted in less critical thinking. So less people being challenged, um, and it has created, an, therefore, an anti-intellectual phenomenon in universities where students and teachers will shy away from topics like you know race, gender, sexuality colonialism or whatever and if they are going to talk about those things they obviously demand a trigger warning beforehand but in a lot of places it just simply brought an end to discussion on these subjects it's like you know this might make me feel bad so you can't talk about it um okay so let's talk about ptsd um the persistence avoidance one of the one of the symptoms of ptsd is the persistent avoidance of trauma related cues which are Triggers. So the you know, person suffering from PTSD, one of their symptoms is that they will persistently avoid those things that trigger them. Um, However, it turns out that avoidance um, is a maladaptive coping strategy. And what clinical psychologists try and do is to get people comfortable with the triggers, so that they can function in society. Because you can't avoid triggers. That's right. In life. I've, They're a part of life. I've, I've got
1: a mate, Lyle, who jumped out of a helicopter in, in, in some war zone and his parachute didn't open and he landed on the ground. Um, he survived, but when he hears a helicopter, it triggers him free falling from goodness knows how high up.
2: Yeah. Absolutely. And so your clinical psychologist is going to try and work with you to make you comfortable with the sound of a helicopter so that, that no longer happens anymore. Got it. Okay. So here's what, uh, here's what the trigger warning does is that. Um it it creates an avoidance rather than an overcoming uh-huh. of the trigger. Got it. Um and so what research has indicated that triggers are a symptom but trigger warnings are also a cause. They're ineffectual at best and a lot of the time harmful. One of the things they do is they infantilize young adults. Sorry, we're, what was that word, sorry? We infantilize. So, we, we, we turn them back into children. So, basically what we're oh, saying right, is, right. Um, we're telling you this because we know you won't be able, you won't be capable of dealing with what other people deal with. Got it. Which then, mm. you know, mm. a, a, and, and that reinforces in their minds, you have a weakness. So, whenever we do this, we're reinforcing in the minds of the person, you have a weakness... You have a weakness, you have a weakness, Mm. you need to have a trigger warning. Right. Um, And it reinforces the PTSD because it reinforces the idea you can't overcome this, you have to avoid this. So you've got PTSD, Mm -hmm. you're struggling with this trigger, we give you a trigger warning, that in effect is saying you have to avoid this because you can't overcome it. Whereas the whole idea of clinical psychology is working with you to learn how to overcome it. So it's actually undermining the therapy that you're going to be doing when you go for for therapy. That's almost counterintuitive, isn't it? That is, isn't it? It really is. (laughs) Um, As a result of that, what happens is that the person then internalizes the trauma, which is what you don't ever want to do because rather than facing the trauma, they internalize it, you know, like they did in the First and Second World War when they came back from the war, never spoke about it again. Hmm. They just internalized it. That's always a bad idea. Right. And along with that, you know, is the the very simple, um, you know, to to simplify it right down, if you tell someone they're a snowflake, they'll be a snowflake. If you tell them they're a victim, they'll be a victim. Right. But if you tell them that they can overcome and be strong, they can overcome and be strong. Hmm. So the important thing is to give the right kind of reinforcement. Interestingly, there are different rates of PTSD in different countries, and the reasons behind it are fascinating. Canada has the highest rate of PTSD at 9.2% of the population. The United States at 3.5%, whereas Europe, Latin America, and Africa, which include some of the most traumatic countries in the world, have a PTSD rate of 0.5%. Wow. And what they're looking at is... Is a number of factors here, obviously. Um, You know, some of that's related to diagnosis and so forth, but it's also related to the wokeness of the culture. All right, so think Mm. about this Um, PTSD is a luxury of those who have time to have it. Mm. So, really, really poor people who have to stop and think every day about where their next meal is coming from. They don't have time to have PTSD. They're living in trauma. They're a traumatized society, traumatized life. They don't have time to have PTSD because if they take the time for it, they won't get their next meal. Wow! And their suicide rates are incredibly low, almost non-existent. Hmm. Whereas in the Western world, the more we, you know, hand out our, uh, we, we we cotton wool our children, um, and you can look at the rates of this over the last thirty years, where we have. Increased our rates of cotton wool around our children, and there is a corresponding increase in the suicide rate. Wow. That goes along with it. It's very sad. Okay, so to summarise, um, how do trigger warnings cause harm? So, number one, it puts the person in an anticipatory state where they are expecting something negative. And then what is anticipated is what will be received. Regardless of whether it would have normally triggered them or not, it now is going to trigger them.
3: Mm.
2: Um, Then it elicits an emotionally negative waiting period. So the person is now negatively impacted emotionally while they're waiting for the trigger to arrive, um, before they engage with the content that they've been uh, warned about. So you've got this anxiety that then exists while they're waiting for that to actually turn up. Um, Three, it creates a negative bias toward the material even though it might not turn out to be a negative. Um, It will be emotionally received as a negative because they've been told that that's what will happen. Um, It's ineffective in helping the person mitigate the negative reactions that will follow. It's counter-therapeutic as it creates anxiety and gives rise to negative emotions that may never have been there and often would never have been there then the negative emotions are then automatically characterized as being traumatized traumatizing rather than being recognized as a growth opportunity so mm. your clinical psychologist is going to say you're going to hit these triggers use them as a growth opportunity use them as an opportunity to face up to the things that you know cause you trouble in your life and grow from them, whereas a trigger warning says the exact opposite of that. This is traumatizing. You can't grow from it. You need to avoid it. So it counteracts and undermines the strategies that your clinical psychologist is actually going to be giving with you. Hmm. So, I've probably raved on enough about this. I've got a whole bunch more research here that I could talk about, but I have to finish up here at some stage. You did say I'd have a bit of extra time I Did I, I did. I did. I did. I wasn't sure how long this would that go, but time's I up. found it fascinating, so I'm going to shut up right now. And that was very interesting. Thank you so much, Lyle. You're listening
0: to the Aussie Pastor here on Faith FM.
1: All righty. Let's um, have some more music. Let's listen to Clear Skies by Ernie Huss and Signature Sound.
6: Long
5: are the nights when you're lonely Tough are the days filled with pain Sometimes this life gives you thunder
6: and then you get caught in the rain. Take it from someone's weather. More than a couple
5: of storms. There might be sadness around you. But joy will soon knock on your door. I see clear skies coming and it won't be
3: long. I see so. God's gonna send down a heavenly light I see clear skies coming And I know that it won't be long No, it won't
5: be long So go on and path at the bad times Some things are out of your hands
3: When life throws a lot of
5: stuff at you Turn
3: up the music and dance I see clear skies coming and it won't be long I see sunshine after the clouds are all gone You may be crying all night But God's gonna send down a heavenly light I see clear skies coming and I know that it won't be long No
1: My bad. I guess I bumped the button. Mmm, Very bad. All right. It's time for Ask the Aussie Pastor. And Lyle, are you ready? Uh, Let's do it, eh? Okay, first question. Why did Jesus say he would be in the ground three days and three nights when, in fact, he was in the ground two nights and just over 36 hours? Apparently that's in Matthew 1240.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And you can't get a third night in there. Even though the Bible says that he would be in the grave for uh, three days and three nights in Matthew chapter 12 and verse 40 as you just mentioned okay so the first thing that we need to uh, notice here is, is that biblically speaking when the Bible talks about a day it also includes the night right okay so you go to Genesis chapter one it's all the way through there you know the evening and the morning were the first day so you, the day includes both the the you know we, we talk about the day you know the, it was that day or this day or the other day and we're thinking of the light part of the day, but biblically, it includes the dark as well. Right. So there's the first point. The second point is that Jesus in this, when, when, uh, in this passage is speaking conversationally rather than legally. So when you say three days and three nights, you know, just as in Genesis says the evening and the morning with the first day, it's another way of just saying for three days. Right. Okay. So he's speaking conversationally, if he's speaking legally, then it's exactly 72 hours. And a second more or a second less, it becomes conversational rather than legal. So it does not require, the Bible does not require a dark portion of the day to be included in the word day when it says the word day. Okay, um, so then if we look at it from that you know, perspective, uh, you know, if you go to Luke chapter 13, verse 33, for instance, um, it talks about the third day is the day, you know, after tomorrow and so forth. You know, it's a little bit leak hunty if, if I said, you know, uh, I was working on a project for three days, you wouldn't, you wouldn't expect that I was doing it for exactly 72 hours. No. You would expect that I did it, you know, over yep. those, uh, three particular periods. Yep. And I may have on the first day done it for half a day and on the last day done it for half a day. Yep. but I did it over that period of time you sound like my contractor okay so the Bible never defines an exact 72hour period so you've got 10 times in the Bible where the Bible says on the third day when the Bible says on the third day that's less than 70 that's less than three days so it's on the right. third day that Jesus rode from the Very dead, good. not at the end of the third day so it's on the third day is different from the end of the third day. Then you've got five times in the Bible where the Bible says within three days. That's also less than three days right? in relationship to the crucifixion. You've got two times in the Bible where the Bible actually says after three days, Jesus was resurrected. Well, if you're going to use that legally, that's actually more than three days. <laughs> so very, very clearly, the Bible is not trying to define a 72-hour period. It's just giving us... The weekend. It happened over the weekend, Friday through Sunday. Um, there's only one place in the Bible where it says three days and three nights. And what amazes me is that people always go to the obscure. They always go to the one verse that is out of sync mm-hmm. with every other verse and then try and bring every other verse and make it yes. in sync with the one verse. This is not how you interpret the Bible. Indeed. Okay, a couple of other points here. Um, The Bible says that the preparation was for a high Sabbath, um, and that's because, of course, it was the uh, Passover weekend. And uh, what you find then is that the women, the Bible says they rested on the Sabbath day according to the commandment, and they arrived early at the tomb on the first day of the week to embalm the body, uh, which is clearly giving you Sunday. So the question is this, if you work backwards from Sunday, we know that Jesus resurrected on Sunday. If you work backwards from there, when the women went to the tomb on Sunday morning to embalm his body, uh, depending on how you do it, that's going to give you a Wednesday or a Thursday crucifixion, right? Mm -hmm. So, if that was the case, if if we're dealing with a Wednesday crucifixion here, then uh, why not embalm his body on Thursday or Friday? Oh, yeah. Why would you wait until Sunday? It Mm. makes no sense. The embalming of the body... Of Jesus on Sunday morning by the women makes no sense if you have 72 hours in which to carry out the deed. Because from wherever you date the start of that crucifixion weekend, you've got plenty of time to do that before the Sabbath. Hmm. So these are, you know, a, 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 a couple of uh, thoughts here. Okay, so the women, they arrive at the tomb at the rising of the sun, the Bible says in Mark chapter 16, verse 1 to 3. So, you know, they've, they've got up early. They've got up before the sun rises. They want to get this job done as soon as they possibly can. Um, and so if you work backwards from there for three days and three nights, that, you, that means you've got Jesus dying at dawn on Thursday. Hmm. And the Bible is very, very clear that Jesus did not die yes. at dawn. Mm. Um, then you've got, of course, the the whole sanctuary service. You know, the fourteenth day is the Passover. Then the fifteenth is unleavened bread. Uh, the sixteenth day is the day of first fruits, which symbolises uh, Christ's um, death and resurrection. And so Jesus dies on the Passover. He rests in the in the grave um, during the unleavened bread. And is resurrected on the uh, on the first fruits because obviously Jesus is the first fruits. The Bible says that very clearly. You got that in First Corinthians chapter five, verse seven and eight. And so, if you've got Jesus dying on Wednesday or Thursday, he's not dying on the Passover. And yet, the Bible is very clear that he died on the Passover. Yes. If he dies on the Wednesday, if Passover is on Wednesday or Thursday. Then Sunday is going to be way past first fruits, and First Corinthians chapter five verse seven and eight cannot be correct because Jesus cannot be our first fruits. Excellent. So there's an abundance of evidence here that 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 point, and and, you know, it goes on there in in First Corinthians chapter fifteen and verse twenty. The Bible says that the first fruits is the resurrection. So the Bible is absolutely crystal clear from any different angle you want to look at it from. You can intersect this from you know, one argument to another, to another, to another, to another, and you are always going to find that Jesus died on Friday. Yep. He rested in the grave on, the Sabbath, on, on Sabbath, the Saturday, and he rose on Sunday morning. It is that simple, Got and it. that fulfills the concept of three days. Huh. Excellent. Thank
1: you, Lyle. All righty, what time is it? We've got 90 seconds left. All right, let's go for a quick question. Should the church get involved in politics versus social causes like climate change, gender equality, and racial justice?
2: The church should have a voice just like any other organisation in the community has a voice, uh, the church, the, what should never happen is that the government institutes a church. Right. So the church should have a voice. This church should inform the government. The government should listen to the church. Uh, the church should use their vote in choosing how best to, you know, to look after our earth and so forth, uh, our lives and whatnot. What should never happen is a union of church and state where the state enforces a church. You've got that happening like in places like Iran or India, um places like that where you've got people who are being persecuted for their faith. Russia, you've got that happening in Russia. Um, particularly against Jehovah's Witnesses and so forth, where people, where the state is coming back and saying, "This is what you can or cannot believe in your mind, in your conscience," mm. and so that's where the ch- where the state oversteps their bounds, the church oversteps their bounds when they say we have to control the state so that we can legislate our particular morality. So, yeah, it's uh, the church should definitely have a voice, um, and as Christians, we should we should exercise our voice on issues that affect morality. Mm. Indeed,
1: you know what, Lyle? We got time for one last song, so let's uh, hear a bit of Gaither. And this song's entitled "Yes, I Know." <clears throat>
2: The vocal band there, Hundy. Yes, mate. With Yes, I Know. Beautiful. Fantastic. Well, it's been a fantastic opportunity to uh, be on the Aussie Pastor show here this afternoon, So Andy. good to have you, mate. Oh, I've, I've often listened to this show, but... This was just really, really special. So a big thank you to Lloyd for the privilege of being able to sit in his seat. Yeah, mate, go out and bake trees any time you like. <laughs> we had fun. No, I didn't mean it. I didn't mean it. Because <laughs> uh, we, we talked about some interesting t- stuff today. You know, this day in history, we had a bit of a slavery theme happening too. we had yeah, like we did. three or four points in there yep. uh, in relationship to, ship to slavery. In the news, and I want everybody to remember this, and that is to particularly keep the uh, situation in India in prayer. 50 people died, 58 churches destroyed um, in persecution over there. Uh, We had the other pastor. We had a great testimony about porn. We threw some tough questions at Hengsley Gungadu in our Bible study section. Yeah, we did. Um, And then we had my thoughts, which was controversial.
1: Mm. Uh, Trigger warnings. Actually, it actually upended my entire thoughts on trigger warnings. I'm I'm upside down (laughs) now. I know, me too.
2: (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and it's like how do I how do I deal with difficult subjects? I don't know how to deal with difficult subjects. But I anymore. think I think
1: now we can we can just charge through our program now. No
2: more warnings. Okay, so you have now been warned. No more warnings. That's it. Yep. Um in our ask the pastor section we talked about three days and three nights and uh that was you know, interesting uh subject to talk about. And also Union of Church and State. So what a programme. Mm. Um we should we should finish up with prayer here. Yes we should. Father in heaven, we just thank you so much for your incredible love for us and the privilege that it is to be able to be your servant and to be uh, able to just share your word here um, on Faith FM this afternoon. Bless each one of our listeners in a special way. Stay close to them and draw them near to you. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, my name is Lyle. I am an
1: Aussie pastor. And and I love you all. And my name's Hunty. I'm man in black, and I love you too. But God loves, loves, loves you so, so much, much more. more. See, See you, next, you time. next
3: time.
0: Thanks for joining the Aussie Pastor. If you enjoyed today's program and would like to find out more about Jesus, our ministry, always to support us, go to FindJesus.tv.